Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Hostage families storm Israel's parliament, demanding a change of course to save their loved ones. As Benjamin Netanyahu's poll numbers plummet, I discuss what comes next with former Israeli Foreign Minister Zippy Livni. Then to Gaza, where the death toll continues to rise. I'll talk to the former Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, Salam Fayyad, about future Palestinian leadership. Also ahead, four years since COVID-19 first emerged, have we conquered it and are we prepared for the next supervirus? Journalist Donald McNeil joins me with his lessons from 25 years of covering pandemics. And it's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. As Ron DeSantis departs the Republican race, lawyer George Conway with Michelle Martin on Trump's legal woes. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Amanpour in London. Fifteen weeks into the October 7 war and divisions inside Israel are spilling into the open. Hostage families stormed into the Knesset today to protest Prime Minister Netanyahu's handling of the war on Hamas and Gaza and demanding negotiations to free their kidnapped loved ones. Meantime, a new poll shows Netanyahu's support to be at nearly rock bottom and his Likud party coming a distant second if there were to be an election today. As a senior military voice in the war cabinet, former chief of staff Gadi Eisenkot called for immediate elections and demanded the government tell, quote, the truth to the people about the war's stated goals and achievements. Overseas, the EU top diplomat Joseph Borrell blasts Netanyahu's rejection of the two-state solution, which the United States and the international community back. The other solution they have in mind, to make all the Palestinians live, to kill of them, 25,000 already in Gaza. 70% of women and children. Certainly, the way you're trying to destroy Hamas is not the way they're doing, because they are seeding the hate for generations. Joining me now is veteran Israeli politician, former foreign minister, Sipi Livni. She's known Netanyahu for years, having worked both in opposition to him and in coalition with him. Sipi Livni, welcome back to the program. Um, can I start by asking you. you, are you surprised at this stage, 108 days since the massacre and then the war on Hamas, that all of a sudden this anger, these divisions within the Israeli uh, system are spilling out into the open? Well, I'm not surprised that the war takes so long because uh, this is an asymmetrical war between the country uh, and the terrorist organization, we are looking for victory, they are looking for survival, so it takes time. Uh, but uh, the fact that we have more than 100 uh, hostages uh, that were taken uh, and uh, the statements of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu about the day after or his unwillingness uh, to deal with the uh, different plans that are on the table, including by the United States, create now uh, 
the division again amongst the Israeli society. So, were you surprised, like a lot of people were, that Gadi Eisenkot, who's generally very well respected in your country, is a member of the war cabinet, an observer member, uh, made that rather, you know, quite blunt intervention on Israeli television, firstly calling for elections immediately or as soon as possible, uh, saying that the Prime Minister had not been telling the people the truth about what was happening on the ground. Let me just play a small soundbite and have you react. We need, within a few months, to return to the Israeli voter and go to elections in order to renew trust. Because at the moment, there is no trust. So why is there no trust? Do you agree with him that there is no trust? Uh, firstly, I am glad that uh, Eisenkot and Benny Gantz are part of the Israeli uh, war cabinet because I trust them more than I trust the others there. And the moment in which they decide to quit, this is for me a message saying that, saying that they are not influencing anymore uh, the cause of things. Uh, but I think that in these are dramatic moments, not only in terms of Israeli politics, but this will define the future Israel security, the future of Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. And therefore, uh, I think that we should all focus on what is the alternative for Hamas, how can we keep Israel security, and how to work with and not against our allies and uh, first and foremost the United States that stands with Israel since day one and offers some ideas about regional uh, security matters. Uh, the Saudis are speaking about normalization and of course they cannot abandon the Palestinians, but this can create uh, new opportunities for the future. And I'm so sorry that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister that Netanyahu is not uh, using this opportunity to create a better future. Okay, can you explain why? I mean, look, people have known that he has been essentially against a two-state solution from the beginning of his mandate when he first got in power in 1996. But now he's coming out and saying it publicly and saying it in response to, as you say, his biggest backer, the United States, not to mention the entire... Uh, uh, you know, allies and, and Western community, and as you said, some of the Arab states which want to normalize with, uh, with Israel, for Israel's security and, and, and the like. Why is he saying oh, this? And, and is it, wh wh why do you think he's saying this? Netanyahu now is, tr Netanyahu tries to divide the Israeli society on the same old campaign, who is for or against the Palestinian state. He's also saying that the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is like Hamas, they are all the same. So we shouldn't first uh, aid or help or uh, accept the presence of the PA in Gaza Strip and later to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now, I do believe that there's a need to take care of Israel's security uh, this is crucial these days, but the real question, how can we, for, we form a different uh, security structure uh, regionally? And frankly, when we uh, need to choose uh, who will control Gaza, so the options, the real options are Hamas, no way. Israel, Israel doesn't and shouldn't take care of two millions of Palestinians that are there. We don't want to reoccupy Gaza. We just need to take care of our security. So the third option is a Palestinian regime, uh, whether it's the PA or, or others, but we need to deal with it. We need to give an answer to this now, because otherwise the Hamas will continue. They can, you know, try to survive the next day to uh, be the regime in Gaza again and threatens not only Israel, but also uh, the Palestinians in Gaza. And therefore this is truly urgent to make this decision now. It's not the day after in the future, it's here and now. So you just said that uh, he and many of his supporters equate the Palestinian Authority with Hamas. I mean, do you believe that to be the case, given the fact that it is the entity, the Palestinian entity that has recognized Israel, that works with Israel, uh, by and large, for the, for the most part? Do you, I mean, is that a smart thing to tell the people of Israel? Of, co of course it's not the same, but I would say the following. I'll speak about our interest. It's not for me to choose the Palestinian leadership, but right. yet 
it needs to be clear by the inter entire international community that it's not going to be Hamas or any terrorist organization. And we need a regime that is willing to work with Israel on security and give legitimacy to Israel when we need to fight against terror also within Gaza Strip and to, uh, to be responsible to the life of, of the Palestinians that are there. So uh, uh, whether it's a new PA, renewed PA, a Palestinian Authority or others, it's less important. But these are the parameters, these are the conditions. And for now, uh, well, the Palestinian Authority is not, uh, um, cannot um, work or fight terror within Gaza Strip. That's for sure, it's too weak. But I think that we need to enter into an interim period of time and t try and work together with regional stakeholders, with the United States mm -hmm. to make, to, to begin these steps uh, toward the future and so, uh, without yeah. any hesitation. Uh, how do you think that's going to happen if the prime minister is just saying no? Who's going to make that happen? And as I said, you know, the pollsters say that he apparently, if it was his Likud party going to elections, he's got like 16 percent compared, which is like, you know, less than less than half of what Betty Gantz has at about 37 percent. Who's going to create yes. and enable what you're just saying, the need to work with your partners uh, to create a final you know, peace? It's clear that uh, for many years, um, Netanyahu's opponent is now losing in uh, a polls. And uh, I do believe that this is the end of uh, Netanyahu's era in Israel politics. And I do hope that those that will replace him from uh, a center part of Israel politics will adapt uh, these uh, views. That is a combination of Israel's security needs with a vision uh, for the future and hopefully a new regional structure. And can I ask you about the United States? I mean, what is the cost to an Israeli leader, or is there no cost, of dissing, uh, uh, you know, rejecting your closest ally, particularly a president who got up and showed the world that he supported Israel in its hour of desperate need, uh, embraced the prime minister himself despite policy differences, supported uh, the, the, the right to self-defense and frankly the way the war is being conducted, very worried about it now, even calling to stop, quote, indiscriminate bombing. Is there a cost to a, an Israeli leader who publicly disses the president of the United States? Uh, I, I do believe that all that the Israeli public and uh, most of the Israeli politicians truly appreciate uh, uh, the uh, American administration who stands with Israel since day one, trying to help uh, share or show uh, uh, deterrence to others, including Iran and Hezbollah, that at first uh, we all uh, were um, worried that this can turn into a regional war. Uh, and th this is the right thing when these horrors, uh, this uh, uh, Hamas as a terrorist organization did these horrors. And we are grateful. And in a most um, appalling way, it looks like uh, the American president is doing the right thing without taking care of his own internal politics while the Israeli prime minister is just thinking about his own politics without taking care of, of Israel's security needs as he should. And therefore, it's not just about being polite, uh, but it is also about Israel's security needs. We need the uh, United States. It's part of Israel's uh, strategic uh, security needs. And uh, therefore, you know, Netanyahu's campaign is I'm the only one who can say no to the international community, including the United States. And I believe that we need a leader who knows how to work with the United States and our allies in defining Israel's security needs and working together with them. Mm -hmm. And this is missing these days. So, Zippy Livni, you just questioned Netanyahu's self-described role as Mr. Security. And many Israelis question it, um, and we know that, and we've seen the polls. But I want to ask you this. Gadi Eisenkot said it is time to tell the people the truth about, A, the war on Hamas, that, that there's still two-thirds of them, at least by your own calculations, still are surviving. But most 
or maybe more importantly for the people, is the fact that, you know, the military might, as we are told, has not brought back your hostages. Most people believe that it was a negotiation, it was a deal, it was, you know, there was a pause, and you got back half the hostages. Half of them remain. What do you think is... I mean, uh, yes. it looks like Israelis believe that too. I mean, they went into the Knesset today. No. I think that we, there is no Israeli who is not thinking now about uh, uh, one-year-old uh, uh, ostage uh, that was taken with his uh, parents and his brother and or, uh, about uh, the hostages. And this is the uh, most important goal of, of this war. But it's also clear that we can't afford Hamas as a regime the next day. And therefore, what I'm suggesting, and we all support uh, the war against Hamas, but I do believe that since we don't want to see them, and nobody wants as a regime, uh, the idea of working together with uh, deciding now who's going to replace them can uh, uh, lead to uh, a deal on the hostages and mm -hmm. also another regime at the end of this war, the sooner the better. But the war is being supported as yep. the need to release these hostages because uh, on one hand, you have Israel's security. On the other, it's about Israel's solidarity, which is part of our strength. And mm -hmm. we need to do it, uh, we need to, to have both. Sibi Livni, thank you so much for joining me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Meantime, the Palestinian and Israeli foreign ministers met in Brussels today to discuss a roadmap for the future. Is there any way to permanently end the bloodshed and break the cycle of violence as we were just discussing? As much as people call for new leadership inside Israel, the same is true for the Palestinians, where experts say the people deserve better. I am joined now by Salam Fayyad. He served as Prime Minister for the Palestinian Authority, and he's joining the show from Princeton. Welcome back to the program, uh, Mr. Fayyad. I wonder whether you can respond to Zippy Livni in terms of the idea of what it's going to take to have a, a really empowered and capable uh, Palestinian new leadership. Well, do you think there should be a new leadership first and foremost? Uh, thank you, uh, Christian, for having me on your show again. Uh, let me first say that actually I have for a number of years been calling for the personal leadership to be a part of making or working on a better future for the Palestinian people. So that's what comes to mind immediately when you say future leadership and all. And that requires uh, recognition of the basic fact that a divided house cannot stand, certainly cannot continue to stand. That, to me, is the most pressing priority facing us. When it comes to talking about a different kind of PA and all of that, uh, empowerment of the PA, 
enabling the PA. I was first to actually say explicitly that the PA as currently constituted or configured cannot really continue to govern and certainly cannot assume the responsibility of taking care of the needs of our people in Gaza, in addition to the West Bank. I used the terms re reconfigured. By that, I meant, and I am repeating today, political enablement. And that really begins by trying to put the Palestinian polity together. That's an absolute must. Secondly, in terms of engagement with Israel on a solution and all, it's high time. It's been high time for a number of years now that the path the PLO has been on, trying to really get us to the state that we wanted to have. On the territory Israel occupied in 1967, turned out to be at best an exercise in futility. Worse than that, actually, we are a lot more far removed from that as an outcome than we were at any point, to be honest with you right now. It's kind of ironic in some way that at the height of the ongoing war in Gaza, a lot of interest now resurfaced in the so-called two-state solution. Rather ironic, after many years of many people saying that it was at best on life support if it has mm -hmm. not died already. Well and good. What are we really prepared to do about that? First of all, to recognize actually that the path we are on is not really going to take us to a better place. What would is actually a different political process, one that begins with recognition of our natural rights as a people. It's very important for our leadership to actually articulate a vision as to what that really actually might mean. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, it should also busy itself and preoccupy itself with what is, to me, the, the most pressing priority of all, bringing the current on, uh, ongoing war of aggression to an end. Uh, the two objectives, in my view, on the one hand, trying to put the Palestinian authority uh, to unite it, to have a unitary Palestinian authority that governs through a government consented to by an expanded PA, is not inconsistent with anything. Actually, it is unnecessary. It might present a, an important instrument in trying to bring the war to an end. That's very, very important. So in all the talk about what needs to happen to the political process, how to revitalize it and all, I think all of this is important. It will take a lot of time before all of this is, is translated into an action plan that's agreed to and adopted internationally. In the meantime, what is happening to stop the war? That, to me, is the most pressing priority. With Palestinian leadership preoccupying itself, first and foremost, with that objective, bringing the war to an end by emphasizing and working on reuniting our polity, I think it mm -hmm. definitely would make itself relevant to the discussion about the future. That's okay. what's really needed in order to revitalize the Palestinian Authority, in my judgment. Okay, okay, you've sort of laid out a, a big menu there. Let me ask you a specific question. Who do you think can help yes. the Palestinians most to achieve what you're saying? Is it your Arab brethren? Is it, uh, is it Saudi Arabia, who Israel wants to have a normalization with, and I, apparently Saudi Arabia does as well? Should they be more uh, insistent that Palestinian rights and aspirations get taken care of. Let me just play, Salam Fayyad, a quick bit of an interview I did with uh, Prince Turki bin Faisal, former head of intelligence of, of Saudi Arabia. Just listen to this. Should there be uh, a settlement that the present leadership of Hamas, of the PLO, and of Israel should be excluded from any participation in any future political role? They have to pay for what they have done uh, in, in, in this process. Uh, all of them are, are failures. So he is making a case that every part of the constituent parts of this, 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 this endless cycle have failed, 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 and they all should go. And I want to tell you, because obviously I quoted numbers and polls to Zippy Livni about their prime minister, your, your president, Mahmoud Abbas, yeah. his polls are also way down. He hasn't even had an election, uh, yeah. you know, in, in about 20 years. Yeah. And he's incredibly unpopular. So do you have a structure by which you think one can revitalize the PA? And furthermore, you know, while, of course, Israel and the others say there's no way there can be Hamas or anything like that, you told me uh, last time we talked that some version of Hamas, i.e. The, the, the political arm or whatever it is, even, as long as they accept 
nonviolence, they accept the peace process, are going to have to be included. Is that still your view? First of all, let me answer the question you asked first uh, about like who can help us with this. I think first and foremost, this is a national responsibility. This is a Palestinian responsibility. And it really has to come from within. If, you know, after all of the casualties that we have sustained and suffered and continue to sustain and suffer daily, last 24 hours we lost 178 innocent people killed in war. If, if that is not enough to really move us to the point internally before we really look for help from others, including Arab brothers, I don't know what might. So as part of really being relevant to the conversation, I think this is first, first and foremost. It has to be utmost priority on the part of our leadership. Secondly, in terms of the polls, I'm aware of the polls. They have been negative uh, for a long period of time, and especially so in, 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 in recent months uh, after the war broke out. And I have to say, predictably, I mean, that cannot really be not predicted for a variety of reasons without really going to the history now. But this is where we are, a reality. The question is how. It's well and good to state principles. But the, the how to really get there, how to really get to the point where we have leadership responsive enough to the needs of the people, both in terms of their requirements to continue to withstand the adversity of the occupation on the way to ending it, but also in, in terms of the latter, which is how to really respond to our national, the, our, our need for, to see our national rights and aspirations fulfilled. This is critical. This is absolutely essential. It's a personal responsibility. Any help that we can get from our Arab brothers would be much appreciated for sure. Now, how to get there? Israel has the luxury of talking about elections. And I heard in the first segment of, on your show, uh, Ms. Livni saying uh, something about elections, and you quoted Gadi Eisengot on, on the need for Israel to go elections. I don't know if we really have that luxury. We haven't had elections, as a matter of fact. The last time we had General elections was in 2006, presidential elections 2005. We haven't had elections in two decades now, in a very long period of time. Are we really likely to have, be able to go to elections in the midst of an ongoing war? What I suggested, as a matter of fact, was to try to find a way to create a national consensus to get us to the point where we're able to have elections. I actually outlined that as a transitional period uh, that is book-ended by national elections agreed to at the start of that transitional period. If I may comment briefly also on something I heard said uh, during the first segment of your show about where Israel is on the question of two, uh, resolution yep. of the conflict and where Mr. Netanyahu is on, on this issue. First of all, let me say this should not have come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu ran on a platform to destroy Oslo when he ran first for prime minister in 1996. He's proud of that. He repeated uh, that, that claim many times, including recently. When he knew, he's smart enough to know, that Oslo framework did not have in it the certainty of Palestinian yeah. statehood. It was a promise that we felt, we Palestinians felt we could have. But then he ran that way. He never ran a campaign since then for prime minister without saying repeatedly, not on my watch. And by that he meant, a Palestinian state would not see the day, the light of day on his watch. And he said famously that there can be no sovereignty over the territory of the River Jordan and the Mediterranean but Israel's. Now, where is that state in that, in, in, in that lexicon? Nowhere. So when he said what he said recently, that first of all should not have come as a surprise. Now, in terms of your other points about the, it, it, does he not worry? About, about going publicly against a position stated by the United States. I think when he really sees that there are consequences to the actions and things he says, he would. For all he might be, I don't know if he's irrational. And the fact of the matter is, when he said what he said about two-state solution, certainly he is reinforced and continuing to do these things if he, if he hears what he said translated into, well, there may be different versions or form of, forms of two-state solution. Let me be very clear on this. The end game for a Palestinian must be a fully sovereign state on the ter territory Israel occupied in 1967. That has to really be defined. And it, a timetable has to be defined. Uh, 
uh, identified. Also, all of this has to be enshrined in, in an international resolution by Security Council. But what cannot wait, all of this is important, until all of these things are done, what cannot wait is a determined effort to end the war. And Mr. Netanyahu cannot continue to say not only no, but hell no to anything. Hell no okay. to stopping the war. Hell no to a transitional deal to re release uh, 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 Israeli prisoners. And hell no to uh, a Palestinian state. He just cannot continue to do that and run away with it. He, he does not think that he's messing around with a giant. He thinks that he's messing around with, with a paper tiger, I think. That's, that's how he calculates. Well, we'll see how this continues. Thank you so much for joining us, Salam Fayyad. Now... It's four years since the U.S. registered its first COVID case. While the world has mostly moved on, we do remember the virus killed more than 7 million people worldwide, cost trillions of dollars, and demanded that we learn from all the mistakes that were made in order to prepare for the next big one. Joining me now, award-winning former New York Times health correspondent, Donald McNeil. His new book is called The Wisdom of Plagues, and he's joining me now from New York. Donald McNeil, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you know, I sort of said demands that we learn from those mistakes. In short, your book, Wisdom of Plagues, have you concluded that the world in these four years has learned the mistakes and will be better prepared for the next big one, or, or disease X, as it's called? It, it's country by country. Mm -hmm. um, I'm afraid, my argument in the book is the United States lost almost two times as many people as it, quote, needed to lose in this pandemic. Um, that, that we could have done a whole lot better about it. And it has a lot to do with leadership and it has a lot to do with our failure to make tests in time and, and, and many other things. So I don't think we are better prepared for a pandemic uh, than we were uh, the last time. Um, other countries did very differently, took very different approaches the way we did. And I think some of them did better, both autocracies and democracies. And the one thing you can say about disease X, which is a concept that's been around long before before COVID came along, and, and I know it's been talked about at Davos, but it's been around since before Davos, we don't know what the next pandemic is going to be. And, you know, it it used to be that everybody, when you asked experts about this, they always said flu. I worry more about H5N1, Indian flu going uh, pandemic. Uh, then a coronavirus came along and attacked us. It might not be either of those next time. It might be an adenovirus or paramyxovirus, or it might be drug-resistant bacteria. It might be a fungus. There, there are lots of things that are waiting to get us, and we have to be much better prepared. And I argue for a sort of a Pentagon-like response to disease. Okay, so that's interesting, because you basically said, and just now in, in your previous answer, you said some countries did better than the U.S. You named Germany, you named Canada. But then you say, and some autocratic nations. Um, which autocratic nations? And you say, you know, if it was me, I'm going to quote you, I think you say I, I would be a, a public health fascist. Now, you know, don't like the word fascist, but what do you mean? What I said was, and I was warned many times not to say this, <laughs> Donald the longer McNeil. I covered disease, the more of a public health fascist I turn into. Meaning, I think we need... If, if my book's aimed at anybody, it's aimed at people who are now in medical school and now in public health school and may someday be running the CDC or the NIH or whatever replaces them. And in some ways, they need to stop wanting to be as loved as they now are and have a sweet bedside manner and be tougher about saving lives, to think maybe more like George Patton and less like Florence Nightingale, that it used to be that if you were a public health leader, you had to make really tough decisions about how you were going to stop an infectious disease. I mean, we're very lucky now. We now have bottled oxygen, which we didn't have in 1918 during the 1918 flu. We have uh, antibiotics for secondary infections. We have ventilators and, and ECMO machines and all these other things. Had we not had those things, 2020 might have been worse than 1918 if we'd had the technology back then. And you have to be able to step in at the same to buy time until you can produce the vaccines, the monoclonal antibodies, and the drugs that will allow you to actually stop the epidemic through pharmaceutical means. Mm -hmm. And that is essentially my argument. And some countries did better at that. Nobody likes it when you use, use the example of China. But in fact, China made itself virus-free for almost three years and held its economy together while we floundered 
and watched, you know, 1.1 million Americans die. I mean, the death rate of every country in Asia, whether it's an autocracy like China or whether it's a semi-democracy like South Korea or Japan, I shouldn't say semi-democracy, you know, they did much better than we did. Mm -hmm. um, and they did it because of good leadership and because of the population cooperated with, uh, with, with uh, the recommendations that were made. Um, okay. You know, some countries like Cuba did well. Some countries like uh, Australia and, and New Zealand did well. It, it, it's enormously very various country by country. But I agree that if you take our closest peers, Canada and Germany, they had uh, a little bit more than half the deaths we had, and the difference was leadership and and people coming together and believing the leaders, accepting the lockdowns when they were needed, accepting travel strict restrictions when they were needed, and particularly accepting vaccines when they were available. Okay, so what happens next time? Because clearly in the United States, also down south in Brazil, you know, there were the, you know, the group of, of deniers, conspiracy theorists, and general chaos agents that caused a lot of uh, misinformation and, and, and lack of clarity. So you know that since there has been an, an argument and a debate, even in this country, the UK, where I am, about the actual effectiveness of lockdowns. Was it the right thing to do? Uh, did, did it cost too much on the economy and all the, you know, the, the sort of domino effects that that had? Uh, you, you still come down on that then, do you? On the, on the strict lockdowns, the mask wearings and things like that? Well... You have to understand, it, it, everybody sort of focuses on, oh, lockdowns, oh, schools, you, you ruin it. Lockdowns shouldn't have lasted as long as they did. Mm -hmm. it, it, masks shouldn't have lasted as long as they did. The problem is that if you have, you know, a sort of lockdown light, a kind of garden party version of a lockdown, if you have masks, whereas some people wear masks and some people don't, don't, and people get tired of it, and people don't want to accept the vaccines, then of course it doesn't, it doesn't work very well. Um, you know, the countries, the, the, all these, quote, non-pharmaceutical interventions like masks, like, uh, like quarantining and stuff, only work for short periods of time when people are actually scared. And eventually the dam breaks, people get fed up with it. And now, hopefully, by that time, you've got some sort of countermeasure that works. But instead, people began to believe in countermeasures that mm -hmm. clearly didn't work, like hydroxychloroquine right. and, and ivermectin. Mm -hmm. And you had misdirection coming from the top. And so... I'm not optimistic about the next pandemic, not in the United States. And especially if those leaders get back into, into, into office, presumably. Whether they do or not, the country is so polarized okay. and there are so many people who are inclined to just think all scientists are lying elitists and they ought to be ignored or that I ought to be strung up. Uh, you know, I'm getting hate mail again since this book has come out. Uh, you know, as long as that okay. persists, uh, they're, they're, we're going to suffer from from the results of that. And can we can we just make a, a, a fact? You know, the conspiracies about MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, have caused and continue to cause, uh, you know, flare ups of of deaths by measles, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Countries which had had obliterated this stuff because of these, you know, as you call cancer of rumors and and the conspiracies and all of the rest of it. So we know the damage that does. But what I want to also ask you is, do we know, are, are you, how important is it and are you clear about the origin of COVID and the origin of any pandemic that comes up in the, in the future? The battle over whether COVID came out of a lab or whether COVID came out of the wet market is still on. Um, I, I wrote an article, you know, three years ago now saying we need to look into the COVID, uh, the lab leak theory more seriously. Um, clearly, the Chinese were covering up what they knew. Clearly, they still are covering up what they knew. I don't think we're going to know the answer any more than we know the answer as to whether Cuba was involved in JFK's assassination or whether Alger Hiss was actually a Soviet spy or things like that until an autocratic state opens up its files. And I don't expect that to happen during my lifetime. Nonetheless... Given everything I look at, I think it is more likely that the outbreak started in the market mm -hmm. than it did in a, in a lab. But I can't prove it, right. and neither can anybody else. And it's a it's a, it's an ongoing battle, and it's polarized, and it's given the Republicans in Congress a lot of uh, a, a lot of ammunition mm -hmm. to beat up on Tony Fauci with and beat up on scientists with. But the truth is, it doesn't really make any difference. We need better lab protocols if you are going to do any sort of dangerous research. And doing gain-of-function research is like doing nuclear weapons research. It's extremely dangerous. But if you're going to have a nuclear arsenal, maybe you need to do it. 
And we okay. also need better controls over things like wet markets. Thank you so much, Donald McNeil. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sharks have been the subject of lore and legend for centuries. A lot of what we think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, shreds through those stories and separates fact from fiction. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. In every episode, I will tell you an imaginary story. After the story, we rip up and reveal the scientific truths of these fishy tales. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in U.S. presidential politics, former President Trump continues to bounce around from courthouse to the campaign trail. This morning, he was back to face trial for his statements about former columnist E. Jean Carroll's sexual assault allegations in 2019. Just ahead of the New Hampshire primary, he got a boost from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who decided to drop out of the race and back him. Conservative lawyer George Conway now joins Michelle Martin with incisive analysis on how Trump's legal woes are playing out and shaping this campaign. Thanks, Christiane. George Conway, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. So look, I know you're a lawyer and a legal analyst. You're not a political analyst per se, but I did want to get your take on what we've just seen in Iowa. As we are speaking now, the Iowa caucuses are just behind us. You know, it's, um, by all accounts, decisive victory for the former president there. Just what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, this is where we are. I mean, I've been saying for quite some time that I thought that we're going to have the first, for the first time, running as a major party candidate, a convicted felon. And that's what he, I think he will be that by the time the fall rolls around, because I do think the trial here in the District of Columbia of the January 6th trial, the one brought, the case brought by Jack Smith just against him before Judge Chutkin here in the district, I think that one's going to go to trial. Um, You know, it's just a remarkable confluence of firsts. I mean, we have the first adjudicated rapist who is going to win a major party nomination, the first person who has been, you know, who who is under indictment in four separate jurisdictions with 91 counts. I mean, it, it, it is just absolutely unprecedented. But with Donald Trump, it's almost it's almost inevitable that this this was going to happen. Do you have any thoughts about why these very serious allegations don't seem to make much difference in, a, in the political realm? I mean, you have, you know, close connections to people in the Republican political world. And I'm just interested in what you think about that. It's partisanship run amok in part. And then I think a lot of this, I mean, I, and I do think there is some segment of the population that wants a strong man. Um, and I, I don't mean that in a complimentary way. I mean that in the, the in the sense of a, of a quasi-dictatorial authoritarian figure. Uh, they want to just basically assume the facts that they think are true are true. They don't want to think they don't. They're not interested in evidence. But I think another thing that's going on here, I think a lot of this is that people don't want to admit that they were wrong about Donald Trump. They don't want to admit that he's a bad person, because if they admit that he's a bad person, then they, by extension, are admitting that they are not good people for supporting him, or at least it tarnishes them in their own eyes. So they have to justify where they've been and 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 where they're going um, because they, they they just don't want to admit that he led them astray and and that they've been suckered and that that that, that they're wrong and that that he's bad. I, I think that's just a, a big part of it. Is that true? You think that's true for people in your own orbit? Oh, well, you know, I mean, my orbit's changed a bit over the last few years. But I think, you know, part of it is not wanting to admit you're wrong. But part of it also is um, there's an identity there. Uh, there's a there's a, a a tribalism there. And, you know, you don't you don't want to be excluded from the tribe because you don't you think the other tribe, the, the liberals who you've been hating on for so many years, 
they're never going to accept you. And if you if you dare question uh, the leader, um, you'll be cast out of your own group and you'll be, you'll be homeless. The other thing that I think is going on is there's an economy that has been built around Trump and Trumpism. Um, I think that there's a whole, you know, you have all of these consultants and all these politicians whose livelihoods or their chosen careers or their chosen course of, of, of their lives is dependent upon not uh, antagonizing other people in that community. And so, I mean, you see that with members of Congress who are who who have to fear being primary. You see that with political consultants. I mean, for example, uh, the the it was reported just the other day that the Trump campaign is saying nobody should hire Jeff Rowe, who was a political advisor, a chief political advisor for Ron DeSantis, that they he's going to be blacklisted and nobody wants to be blacklisted. Nobody wants to be cast out of the tribe. And there is just there's also fear of physical intimidation. And I think we saw that to some extent uh, with uh, Lindsey Graham back in January of 2021, where he dared utter that he'd been, he was done with Trump or something like that. And he was accosted at an airport by, by, by Trumpers. And you saw it also. I mean, one of the things that you've seen um, uh, when Liz Cheney was running for reelection in Wyoming, she had to have a big security detail in Wyoming with education never known. And it, there, is a, there is certainly a degree of physical intimidation. And um, that, you know, frankly, that's what January 6th was all about. So let's pivot around to the, the subject that sort of brought us together today, which is you have actually said that you think that Trump will, quote, spend the rest of his life in jail. You really think that? I do think that. I mean, he's either going to become president or he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. He certainly deserves to spend the, life, the rest of his life in prison. I think that if you take any combination of the counts in these four indictments, uh, with which he's been charged, you will take almost any conviction and almost any combination of them is going to uh, put him in jail for a number of years. And you know, this is a this is a seventy seven year old man. So I, I I think there is a very good chance he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. And and that's part of the dynamic that is going on here. He knows that. I mean, he's not a strategic thinker. He's a he's a sociopath. He's a he's a he's a man with a reptilian. I'm not going to say intellect, but he understands that he is cornered. And that's when people, you know, people like him with that kind of psychology are the most dangerous. But he understands that he understands that the only way for him to escape the trouble that he's in is to be elected president. Do you think that the purpose of this presidential campaign is to keep him out of jail? I think that is one major purpose. I think another major purpose is to, he does, you know, he's motivated by the things that motivate narcissistic sociopaths, which is power, um, praise, uh, and, and a desire to, to inflict revenge on people who have defied him. And I, I think that we've seen that in some of what, what, you know, what he's, his people are planning for 2025, should he be elected? I mean, they're going to they're going to seek retribution. Uh, he says he's seeking retribution on behalf of uh, the American public, or at least his slice of the American public. But that's what motivates him. I don't think you can understand what Donald Trump says and does on a daily basis simply by saying, "Oh, he's a bad guy. He's a Republican. He's a authoritarian. He's he's racist. He's misogynist. He's this or that." You have to tie it into his fundamental psychological profile. People should not shy away from that, okay? Because I do not think you can understand his behavior without understanding his psychology. And I think we're seeing that in the courtroom as, as, it, as it's happening today uh, or this week in the E. Jean Carroll trial. We're going to see it even more in the future. So what, let's talk about of, of the of the he's got there are 91 felony accounts, felony accounts across four cases. What do you think is the strongest of those? Oh, well, I think the strongest one, the strongest case, I think, is a, which is a slam dunk case because it's so simple, is the case in Florida, the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Uh, 
you know, there, there's no, there, there's really no factual dispute about what happened there because he was caught red-handed with the documents. The documents do not belong to him. They belong to the United States of America. They had classified document markings. And it doesn't even matter that they were, in fact, quote-unquote, classified because the charges that he has been, uh, that were filed against him were, include charges under the Espionage Act. And, and those charges do not turn on specific, whether they're specifically marked as classified, they simply turn on whether or not it's national defense information of any degree of significant sensitivity. And you have that and the fact that there are witnesses and there's video and, and all sorts of evidence that he tried to hide those and did hide those documents from the FBI and that he failed to produce them when he was served with a, a subpoena by the de Department of Justice and that he had his lawyers lie to the Department of Justice. And that's those are simple, simple, easily provable acts of obstruction of justice. And when that case goes to trial, um, I think I don't know that it's going to go to trial this year because uh, it's hard to say what the judge there is doing in terms of scheduling. But I don't he doesn't have a defense in that case. Just not not a shred of a defense. The other case that has gotten a lot of attention and that you have written about most recently is the case connected to the former president's role in the January 6th mob attack on the Capitol. And in that case, one of the things that has gotten a lot of attention from legal analysts and legal scholars is this very sweeping claim, basically saying that he has total immunity for anything that he does or anything that he did while in the office of the presidency. So you wrote about that. And the, the headline of the piece was that Trump's lawyer walked into a trap. What's the trap he walked into? Would you just lay that out for us? Well, the trap that they, they walked into was that they were pushing arguments that were in tension with each other, or they were pushing, they, 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 for example, they, they were, their principal argument is that there is an inherent immunity in the Constitution that comes with the presidents that means that you cannot be subject to essentially to any legal process. They, that, that does not, that, those, that line of cases has never been applied to the presidents in, in the criminal context. It's been applied in the civil context. And the cases are based upon the notion that if you have, you know, the president does things that affect so many people that if you allow them all to sue, if he did something that harmed them, the president would be continually and sue the, sue the president personally for damages. You'd end up with a situation where the president would be worrying about everything he does and who is going to sue him for what. And the president will be worried more about his personal finances and more about the cost of defending litigation than he would be actually doing his job. But again, that rationale only applies to in the civil context, and it only extends uh, by the by the terms of the case law. The case, the leading case, being a case called Nixon against Fitzgerald, which was decided in 1982, to the outer perimeter of the president's official responsibilities. Now, that's a pretty broad standard. It's basically as broad as you can make it reasonably. But it's, you know, it doesn't apply to essentially conducting a coup. But the other point is, it's never been applied to the criminal context. And that's the that's the thing that 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 I, that I think he's going to absolutely lose on, which is the notion that somehow you can extend this civil liability doctrine to the criminal the criminal context. Now, the trap that he set for himself is what had he made a secondary argument, an argument that is extremely weak, based upon something called the impeachment judgment clause. And what the impeachment judgment clause of the Constitution, which is an Article One of the Constitution, because it deals with Congress's powers, it says that. If you if some if an officer of the United States is removed from office by the impeachment process, in other words, impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate and removed as a result of the Senate conviction, he can nonetheless be charged in the courts of law thereafter for any criminal conduct that the that was covered by the impeachment. What what Trump has been arguing is that by by. You could flip that over and say you can only be charged if you are convicted by the Senate. And that's not what the clause said. But what he did also, at, in, in, in what his lawyers did at this argument was, at the same time that they were making this broad, absolute criminal immunity argument, they were saying, and they were saying that we need that broad criminal immunity because... Um, we have to fear political prosecutions when one administration goes in and tries to prosecute the people in the last administration, the president of the last administration. He's saying we can't have that because we need to protect um, um, from political prosecutions. 
But then they're saying at the same time, the exception is if the president is convicted by the Senate, you can nonetheless charge it, which is inconsistent with the claim of absolute immunity. Right. Because that's a political proceeding. The impeachment is a political proceeding. It's not a criminal proceeding. Mr. Conway, you were actually in the courtroom. Can you just try to describe the argument and the exchange between one of Mr. Trump's lawyers and Judge Florence Pan, where you kind of laid out what you're describing as the, the, the difficulties of that argument? Yeah. I mean, what she was doing was she was trying to pin him down and get concess a concession from him that he was arguing for immunity so broad and so absolute that a president of the United States could send SEAL Team 6 up to the Capitol or wherever to assassinate political a political rival and be immune from prosecution for that criminal act. And, and she he, he was refusing to give that concession cleanly. He was saying, yes, but, and the but was, Oh, but a president could still, uh, certainly a president that did that would be impeached and removed, and then he could be prosecuted because that's what the impeachment judgment clause that I described earlier says. The problem with that is that means the president isn't absolutely immune. And that was sort of the gotcha, that, that, that the trap that uh, Judge Pan was leading the lawyer into. And the, the lawyer realized he was being cornered and he kept trying to avoid, avoid falling into the trap by talking as fast as he could and, and talking about things other than that weren't responsive to her answer. And then there's also the tension involved between you know, his position that the president shouldn't be prosecutable because we, we fear political prosecutions, while at the same time saying, but a president can be prosecuted if the most political body in the United States or in, in the United States government, which is the Congress of the United States, says so. And so basically, when she got done with him, his, his position looked nonsensical. It looked ridiculous. And, and that was only about 10 or 15 minutes into the argument. And you knew which way the panel was going to come out at that point because he didn't get any help from any of the other judges. You know, you know what? Look, he is, like any defendant, entitled to a vigorous defense, right? Yes. So, and he is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, like any defendant. But I mean, it is one of sort of the axioms of the American experience that no one is above the law in the United States. Right. No one. I mean, it is right. sort of fundamental, not just to American identity, but to American law. Like that is who we say we are. And I sort of wonder, is there any part of you that worries as an officer of the court that someone is making an argument that, you know, that someone, this particular singular figure can never be prosecuted or held to account in court for anything that he does. I just, I just wondered if you thought about that. Well, I, I, I do. I mean, I don't think it's an argument that, you know, should cause someone to lose their bar license, but I do think it's an argument that is very, very dangerous if it were ever taken too seriously. And, and here's, here's why it's not just that we are a nation of, 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 of laws and not of individuals, but it's the fact that this is part and parcel of what an authoritarian leader wants to have. Authoritarian leaders, if you, if you, if you talk to students of, of history and students of, of, of international political science, and what they will tell you is that, you know, authoritarians are criminals. And they, one of the, re, one of the things that they seek is the ability to do whatever they please and make the law whatever they want and make it the laws, make people the, of their choosing subject to the law while nonetheless not being subject to the law themselves. This is not really that new for Trump. I mean, Trump is someone who said, I think back in 2019 or 2018, article two of the constitution, the constitute, the part of the constitution that deals with the president allows me to do what, get, to do whatever I want. He actually believes that, but that's, again, that's, that's because of, that's, he, he believes that not because he's a legal scholar, but that's his essential nature. George Conway, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. That's it for now. Thank you for watching and goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 